Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, boss man. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. We are back with another Q&A episodes. The content of your emails have been inspiring. I'll take a stab at the theme of the TMBA pod. Ian, as normal, we were starting this phone call with another hour-long phone call just talking about life and business, reflecting on some of the things you've said, hey, that's like a TMBA theme. So what does that mean? Here's my stab at it. We believe that building a business that's remote first, that's location independent, that's based on the web is one of the best ways to build wealth for you and your family. And the way we recommend doing that is in a multi-stage process. The first stage is where you build your skills by working for a small entrepreneurial organization, an official job, or if it's in the early days, an apprenticeship, building your skill set, building your network, getting paid to learn, and eventually parlaying that network and that skill set into a small business of your own get into that point in the first 1,000 days, first three to five years, where you're making $10,000 a month or more from a business that you own, that has a great staff that you can walk away from for multiple months at a time. And we're going to talk about that later in the episode and eventually parlaying that success into a business that can create lifelong wealth for you, a multi seven figure and eight figure exit that can ultimately mean you can be an investor, you can be a mentor to the person who's taken over your company, and that will ultimately be your retirement plan. And that's what we're working on right now, those three steps. And that's the theme of the pod. What do you think about that, boss man? I think that's the life we've been living for at least the last 10 years. I woke up, this happens every six months. I wake up and I'm like, man, when was the last time I had to go to a job and had to wake up for something that I didn't set the meeting appointment for? I'm like, man, I'm lucky. This is nice. It is a little bit strange given that our background is so steep and working hard and having jobs that all of a sudden we just don't have them and we haven't had them for a very long time. And thankful for so many of you who listen to this today that have supported us in that journey and have joined us in it as well. So without further ado, let's jump into the first part of the episode, Boss Man, some Dynamite Jobs updates as many of our newest business, dynamitejobs.com, where the mission is to empower the location independent movement, mostly by finding them great staff members. And we've been doing it by building our amazing staff. Our team continues to grow, continue to change the product. Ian, you've been taking a leadership role in terms of product. Maybe you could describe that shift in, in your workflow and some of the things you guys are up to. Yeah, we released a couple new features this last week, Dan. We have an ATS, which is an applicant tracking system. It's one of these things that uh, we essentially developed to help companies, remote companies, hire better, hire faster. It groups together all the applications that come through. This isn't like a new idea. There's a ton of different ATSs out there. What's unique, I guess, in our space is that most of the companies that were posting with us don't use an ATS. They usually use like a Google form or some other means of collecting the applications. So what's the problem with that, Ian? So someone's saying, hey, I've, I hire five to 10 times a year. I use a Google form every time. Yeah. Why are you even bothering making me a replacement for my Google form? A lot of times there is no problem. 
A lot of times the uh, Google Forms work great. People get to ask Easter egg questions. What's an Easter egg question? You could be a question or some kind of action, like put the word blue in the subject line so I know you read this whole job description. Or there's one question that's like non-negotiable basically for the employer. So it functions as a way to like figure out, you know, if you got like 150 applications, it functions as a way to figure out like the 25 or the 15 that you should actually pay attention to. Correct. Yeah. So if you're using a Google form, chances are you're getting a lot of like spam, basically, which is people that are applying that are either not qualified for the position or they're not in a location that you've specified you're hiring in. It's problematic for these companies because you might get 300 applications and trying to figure out who the 50 are that are good. Right? It's really hard to do a lot of times on your spreadsheet. So the biggest innovation that we've brought forward for our customers recently, just in the last week, is spam filtering. So you can specify the questions that you ask, and then we gather the applications for you. And within that ATS, within your dashboard, we have a new tab that's called Not Matching. And basically, if you said, hey, I'm only hiring in Europe and North America, Anybody that applies from outside of that region, we detect that they're outside of that region or they say that they're outside of that region, they go into the not matching category. And our hope here is just save employers a bunch of time. So right now, the location filtering is active. I think in the future, we're going to see skill set and probably salary filtering as well. Yeah. One of the other things you guys added that I thought was really cool is now when I build a job in DJ, I get a predictor on the right side of the page that tells me how many people are in the database, how many people match my location and skills, and then the estimated number of applications. Yeah, this is based on real data that we have from uh, DJ users. I mean, obviously, now that our database is much bigger, it feels better to be able to present this information. So when you come to DJ, if you're thinking about hiring like a marketer in Europe, we give you estimated numbers for how many people we think will apply to your job. And I think that this tool is going to get better and better as we get more data in showing how many applications we actually got and who got hired. And when you post a job at DJ, I don't think a lot of people know this, Dan, but we market your role to active members at Dynamite Jobs, but then we also go outside of Dynamite Jobs and market to candidates all over the internet. Depending on how much you spend with us, we're able to kind of get you more applications. One of the unique challenges I think that a job board has is like, basically being able to promise what they say they can deliver. And I think if you're using a job board for the first time, it's like, let's see what happens. Let's roll the dice. Here's my $500. And then your rate of uh, repeat kind of purchase or posting with them depends on your results. So I think our goal, Dan, is to kind of demystify the results that you'll get if you post with us. I want you to know hopefully what you're going to get before you post with us, especially if it's for the first time. Yeah, it's tricky because I think that's always been the game with job boards and why they're so challenging is it's a kind of a trust thing. And you have to like build that trust with your audience that you can indeed uh, deliver upon their job. So we're trying to like basically call our shot in advance and uh, yeah, then meet those expectations on the back end. Next up, Dan, in our meeting today, we're talking about how to set expectations for uh, candidates. Mm -hmm. Because this is like another part of the job board that I think really sucks for candidates is like, it's just a black box. You just send off your application. It's just like, I wonder what's going to happen. There's zero feedback loop at this point. Mm -hmm. The only feedback that you ever get is, hey, we're interested in an interview. Other than that, I'm not sure why I got passed on. I'm not sure why I haven't heard back from 10 of these companies that I've applied to. From a candidate's perspective, I think this can be super frustrating. And we're starting to have a lot of information and data 
about why these candidates get passed on or what kind of jobs you should be applying to rather than what kind of jobs you're qualified to apply to. And so I think that there's probably an opportunity for us to start sharing that information with candidates because ultimately I think it's very frustrating as a candidate these days. It's hyper competitive and you're not getting a lot of feedback. So one of our goals later this year is to try and give candidates feedback on where their job applications are. I think that's really cool. One other thing that we've been doing that's exciting is we have ready to hire candidates now at the website. That initial experiment's been going pretty cool where you like you go to our page, you can see this ready to hire candidates. These are people that are like runners up basically or people that our recruiters talked to on the phone that were like, oh, this candidate's great, but they're not hired just yet. So we make a video highlighting why we uniquely think they're an opportunity as a candidate. And then we're turning around and emailing that to people who've subscribed to our list. Speaking of calling our shots, Dan, I think that the hiring market, serving both ends of it, the done for you and then like the posted job, this is somewhere in the middle. And I'm interested to hear from people what they think, but I, I think we've discussed this at length, but like the future of hiring is like some form of matchmaking. And so this ready to hire candidate solution that we have, I think the reason why it's been getting a decent response so far is because it does perform the matchmaking kind of result at a lower price point. Yeah, there's something vague in the air that we haven't quite put our finger on yet, but it's something like our candidates understand that you, the listener of this show, are pretty cool and they want to be a part of that kind of a business. And uh, working on that was feedback from you guys. Part of the reason we're talking about it, if you're following along at home, the first year Ian and I worked on Dynamite Jobs, we did $5,000 in revenue. The next year we did $500,000 in revenue. And this year we're on track to grow over 100% year over year. So part of the reason why we come on the show and kind of talk through Ian's changing his role a little bit, like I was unhappy with my role a few months ago. Sometimes we've got to cut ourselves a little bit of slack and realize that the company is changing dramatically pretty fast, even though it doesn't feel like that, like every morning when we show up to the same meetings and talk about similar things and advance the projects our roles are going to change dramatically here in the next 12 months. And so it's worth, I think, documenting that and talking ourselves through it along with the audience who's doing similar sorts of growth plans. And if you go back and you listen to early Tropical MBA episodes, uh, I wouldn't recommend all of them, but some of them definitely. This is exactly how we got started. So we're getting back to our roots, which is uh, growing a business and then talking about it and finding other entrepreneurs that are doing the same thing. So enough DJ updates. Speaking of other entrepreneurs, Ian, let's get into some listener emails. You can email us, Dan and Ian, respectively, at this domain, tropicalmba.com. Chris writes to us and he says, after listening to your episode number 652, it compelled me to get in touch to give you my insights into the evolution of remote work, especially in Europe. Recently, I've become more and more aware of the increase in remote workers from places like the U.S. affecting the lifestyle in Europe. My girlfriend and I have been working remotely for over five years and are finding it more and more difficult to find affordable accommodation, for example, even on U.K. salaries because the USD is so strong. Facebook groups are rife with stuff like, quote, coming to Lisbon for two months and looking for accommodation, budget 2,000 euros a month. It's becoming a real issue, especially in places such as Portugal, the average salary is around 800 euros a month. We've seen growing resentment to remote workers because of this very type of behavior. He goes on to mention some other spots in Europe. It's certainly an issue that should be discussed as a downside to the increase of remote workers post-COVID. Love your show, by the way. I've been an avid listener for the last two years. Thanks. 
Chris. Chris, we thank you for reaching out to us and sharing such an interesting talking point and starting the conversation, which Ian and I intended to do here today and continue to gather your thoughts on this topic because I think it's interesting and important, but I don't think Ian and I really have any answers. So first caveat, Ian, I think there's a couple of things that are given here that capitalism, the market making these decisions is brutal as brutal as it is beautiful, right? It's like there's all these opportunities we talk about all the time, but then when you see a wave of change like this, a lot of people's lives can be affected for the negative. There's always two sides to the token as well. For example, the cost of living in places like the United States and the UK has also gone up dramatically, right? And people that are empowered by those currencies are looking to change their situation. So if, for example, we would change some of the numbers in Chris's email and replace it with Austin, Texas, we could tell a very, very similar story. I could pull tons of anecdotes about working class people getting priced out of the city of Austin, where, you know, a decade or two ago, Austin was hailed as a place where a working class person can enjoy a bohemian lifestyle can enjoy free time and artistic pursuits and culture and a place that they can afford. And those things have been changed by companies like Oracle, Intel, Apple, the Zuck gang, the fangs out there. They're coming to Austin and they've really changed the situation here too. So I think the first thing I want to mention about Chris's email, just from a historical perspective, is that digital nomads as a group are very distinct from remote workers, I think, in some degrees. And I want to talk about some of the fine points there. Digital nomads have always been very high on our own supply, Ian. Since day one, we would go to a new place and be like, everything's changing because we're here now. Why don't more people cater to us? And the interesting thing about it is just about everything in a locality is more important than digital nomads. So for example, local employers, the government, (laughs) educational institutions, the raw number of digital nomads has always really been so small compared to all these other groups or even just one arbitrary piece of legislation. And so We've always been outclassed by basically every major economic force around us, but intellectually, digital nomadism was such an exciting idea. I think it was always surprising to a lot of us that there wasn't more adaptation to us. Now, meanwhile, all around us, while we were in these locations, we were seeing groups getting disposed, gentrified, change based on groups with a much more profound economic footprint. So for example, digital nomads in Chiang Mai, they go together like milk and Captain Crunch. But the reality was is uh, Japanese investors were having such a bigger impact on Chiang Mai than digital nomads ever would. Even policy decisions at the university, tourism board decisions. You look at a place like Barcelona, there are 30 million tourists a year that visit Barcelona. So you want to talk about the Airbnb market in a city like Barcelona that has a million residents. Let's talk about the 30 million tourists that visit Barcelona before we're talking about a few people that are managing to grow tropical MBA style businesses that are really enjoying the lifestyle afforded to them in Catalonia. So these categories of things are totally different. Now, what's interesting, I think about Chris's email, is we have a situation where you have tech workers in the US, Fang, the big tech companies, not necessarily those companies, but the ones that are built in their footsteps. Think about companies like Shopify, companies that are growing to headcounts to the thousands, to tens of thousands. There's a whole new crop of companies 
that post-COVID are saying, you know what, remote workers, you guys make six figures a year, you make multi-six figures a year, and you don't have to come back to the office now. And the interesting thing about Europe, which is not true of Asia, for people that you know are headquartered in these North America-style companies, is that they can work synchronously in Europe. And so I do think for the first time, this has game-changing potential and could represent a very interesting societal kind of economic shift in the coming years. Yeah. When you start looking at these major corporations and then these smaller major corporations, like you mentioned, Shopify and whatnot, now you're starting to talk about millions of people that don't have to return to the office that are making good wages and that are starting to realize, hey, my money goes further in these other locations. And there's some time overlap between when the rest of my people are working and when I'm working. The interesting thing about what Chris is saying is like this type of person, the person that like works at Facebook and just lives in Lisbon, that person, like I rarely ever met that person all the years on the road that I've lived in these quote remote work hotspots. This group of people is a huge group of people and they weren't there before because they're on meetings all day long. They are highly successful entrenched members of society. A lot of digital nomads, expats, they're more fringe groups, right? We're talking mainstream people who went to good schools, got good jobs, lived the standard American dream, so to speak. And now all of a sudden someone responsible shows up. They say, did you know you can double your net profit? and live a better lifestyle if you just get on a seven-hour plane flight? Because number one, you don't have to pay taxes on your first $110,000 of income. And number two, your living expenses get cut in half. And number three, your kids will probably be in a safer, better situation to get educated. Maybe not the best topic to talk about right now. But if I were to walk around Europe five years ago and like look at people from North America that are actively making six figures plus a year. They're not retirees and they're not independently wealthy investors or tropical MBA types. This isn't a lot of people, right? It's mostly people who are getting away from their lives by like doing some kind of weird side hustle or whatever. Now we're talking about the mainstream coming in, making 200 grand a year. I do think it has the potential to have an impact. And I think it's a really interesting shift. So let's talk about the implications here, Dan. I think is real for a lot of us, which is you figured out some kind of arbitrage play. So it's like I'm making US dollars and then I'm going and spending them in Spain or Italy or wherever I'm doing that. But then someone comes along and they're making even more US dollars than I am and they're spending them in the same location and I'm starting to get priced out. So I'm starting to get a little bit upset. Maybe I'm in my home country here and I can't afford the property taxes anymore, as is the case with a lot of people in Austin, Texas. Or maybe I can't afford the rent in Portugal or Barcelona or one of these places that people want to be, what is the solution? And then you also have to ask yourself the question of uh, uh, what is the local government doing? What are the people doing that are there to kind of preserve and protect this? Because in a lot of cases, which is the case in America, is uh, corporate interest starts to take over public interest. And Yeah, this is a market thing. Yeah. And so the reason you'll get priced out is because the corporations are pricing you out, not necessarily the individuals. So I think, Dan, that we're living in an interesting time here, which is uh, you can roam the earth relatively free if you figure it out. And that's what the show is a lot about, which is trying to figure out creative ways to earn your freedom. But there's a lot of cost to that. There's cost to the people that live in these countries that don't want their life changed. Were we part of the cause of some of this pain? Or are we merely standing back and labeling it? 
And partially the reason I wanted to mention all these larger forces in digital nomadism is I think fundamentally, we've always tried to sort of label these trends that are happening in front of us. And one thing we can do in this situation is I do think in particular, this idea of globalization and hyper-globalization, it will only accelerate. So we could go back, we could start a podcast, given it would be a different set of technologies to get that mess- that pod into your earbuds. A hundred years ago, we're sitting here talking about bikes. And I'm not even joking. We're talking about how bikes allow people to go from village to village that couldn't afford that sort of transportation previous. And that puts pressure on the labor markets in the factories in Britain. It's a real thing. It happened. And it continues to happen. It'll continue to happen faster. And so I think partially digital nomads are canaries in the coal mine. We've been talking about this stuff for 15 years. So we saw it coming so we can prepare for it and we can take advantage of it in ways. There's a lot of people, for example, in the Dynamite Circle community that own real estate in Lisbon because they saw it coming. You have the opposite end of it too. You got places like where I grew up in central Pennsylvania that are losing their productive class where real estate will be worth potentially less than it was 20 years ago. That's a possibility. I don't follow the real estate markets in central Pennsylvania. I think in the context of this conversation, Dan, it's like very possible depending on how far your passport can get you. Because if you look at even a city like Austin, right? If you look at your opportunity, if in the future, and I think that this is probably going to be the case, but if you look at the American passport and you figure out a way that these people can work at one of these larger companies and also live in a place like Europe, meaning the governments are cooperating, will more or less people move to Austin if given the opportunity to move abroad into some of these other cities? I think you'll see a drop in people moving to places like Austin because it's kind of like one of these things where it's like the best option on the table right now or given your passport and your financial situation. But if the whole world opens up, this is something we've been talking about for like 10 years. This is actually becoming a little bit more real now that these corporations are letting you work remotely. If the whole world opens up, yeah, you're probably right. You could see places like Pennsylvania, places with like really bad climate, essentially go to zero if you can live and work anywhere. The other thing you're seeing though, is you're seeing like these kinds of things roll out in phases. So what are we specifically talking about? Because there's trends in Asia that are different. Like these employees that work for synchronous fang companies aren't going to up and move to Bangkok because they got to be on phone calls for six hours a day. So I don't know, I'm making an assumption here that this is perhaps part of like why there's this symbiosis between high salaries from America living in Europe and not necessarily in Bangkok. Now you got to go work for a multinational company that has an office in Bangkok. That's a much smaller niche than, hey, everybody that works for these big tech companies can now basically just sneakily get on a plane and it's the same thing as them living in expensive New York or Boston. Now all of a sudden we're just in Lisbon and we're making out like bandits. So what can you count on except change? Final thought here for me is the places that we all love are going to get more expensive as people can travel and live there. 100%. So count on that. Count on that. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Very interesting to both of us. Thanks, Chris, for the email. Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, 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 persistence, auto dealership desperation, and then tell 
tell me you could use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just a hard driving EN closing show in at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. Next question, Ian, I'm actually going to take from the DC forum, which we'll do on occasion. I'm going to keep it anon, so to speak, because the DC is a private place. One of our members writes that in a few months, he'll be going on paternity leave for three months. So the question is fundamentally preparing for a three-month break from the business. How would you do this? What are some strategies around this? This member offers some options and gets a lot of good feedback. I thought it would be interesting, Ian, for us to tee off on this particular question, not digging in necessarily too much into the details, but many of us have fantasized about walking away from work, from life, from business for three full months, whether it's to raise the next generation or just to go get a spiritual revamp in the mountains of North India, whatever it is, maybe to ride our bike across America, whatever your particular sort of eat, pray, love, getaway is. A lot of us have thought about it. And I thought it would be interesting for us to weigh in on how one might prepare for going on a three-month break from business. Well, if this was Tropical MBA five years ago, I'm sure we would have shown pictures of our backpacks in <laughs> the continents inside of them. <laughs> but we've moved past that a bit. I think there's enough packing lists out there. So the question is like how to prepare your business I think for this move. Yeah. For me, this is a TMBA principle numero uno, which is hopefully, please be building an asset you can walk away from for three months. If you have not done this, you need to start working towards this, right? If you're about to have your first child, your second child, whatever, if you want to take off three months and like you have it. a business that's several years old, my God, I hope you can step away from it for three months. What do you mean though when you say build an asset? So the other week, we we're talking about what it means to be a solo founder and some of the positives and negatives. One of the biggest negatives for me to being a solo founder is being solely responsible for everything that happens and essentially not being able to walk away from your business. And I don't think that a lot of those companies, organizations, cash flows, whatever you want to call them, uh, are actual assets. So an asset should be something that can stand on its own that is valuable to someone else outside of your organization that is desirable, that is sellable, all these things. And most of the time, that is not the case if you're a solo founder, I have seen. So with that being said, I think that if you want to take a break, the first thing you have to do is you have to start getting other people involved in your business that can run the business, that can create this asset with you. So you can essentially step away from it at any given time. And I think it's not always the case that you have this asset, especially in the early days, right? First year, two of your business, like it might not be possible to walk away from your business without these kinds of real consequences, like a drop in revenue or customers leaving. I think that that's just par for the course. You can't always have a bunch of staff and be doubling up and this and that. But if you're in year two, three, four, five, six, the way that we're running these businesses, Dan, is that you and I can absolutely step away for two or three months at a time. Part of the reason, again, this is like an unintended consequence of building a real asset is that you can step away. It's like the thing that makes it an asset is your ability to also step away from the business. 
I think one of the things we think about a lot is what is the actual cash flow engine and can you manipulate it without absolutely being the star of the show all the time and dunking on sales calls and cutting deals and can you actually identify what it is is that engine that generates cash in your business and tweak it and build it and grow it on a day-to-day basis. Now, I'll tell you the first thing I thought of. This is a little bit unrelated to the individual inquiry. The first thing that I thought of is how do you prepare for a three-month break from your business? My first thought was, that's too long. Why would you want to be away from your business for three months? Do you need to go to North India to do Eat, Pray, Love? You can do that in three weeks, probably. I would say, this is the American in me coming out now. I would say, take a three-week break first. (laughs) And when I say take a three-week break, take a real one. An attempt to get off of technology for at least seven days takes you away from an unprecedented number of outside influences and judgments that we have in our current modern life. We are wired as humans to calibrate, to benchmark, to worry about the opinions of others. That's how we make judgments as humans, as we think about what other people think of us, okay? Now, all of a sudden, if you have an online business, you're getting handfuls, hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are judging you on a daily basis. You might want to take a break from that. It's a profound experience. It's been two years since I've done it. It's about time for me to go back and do this. Yeah, it's like you're looking at memes again. It's like, oh man, I swore off these things two years ago. Now I'm right back where I started. Did you ever get done with the internet? Like it's two in the morning and I'm done. Look, I've looked at all the internet now. So I need to. (laughs) Yeah, if you're at that point, you definitely need to retreat. Okay. So then the second piece of advice is I think three months is, is perhaps too long because it's a lot of momentum to lose. If you're trying to get to that phase where we talked about at the top of the show, when you're making $10,000 a month, you got a good team going and you're building towards long-term wealth. I don't think you need to take a whole fiscal quarter off from that task. I say seven day digital detox, a good three week vacation and come back and see how everybody's doing without you. If you want to extend it a few more months, I think you can get that done in one full day at the beginning of the week of meetings and maybe even showing up at the end of the week for the team meeting or the final check-in to see how everything gone. Hey, come on, two days of work a week to keep your dream, your wealth going. I think it's totally worth it rather than letting your foot off the gas for a whole quarter. These are the kinds of things, these overly lifestyle-y things when you create a dichotomy between, oh, my business is work and stress and then going to North India, that's like cool and regenerative. When you make this dichotomy, I think a lot of people take the foot off the gas for a quarter. A quarter becomes a year. A year becomes a mindset and an identity. And you wake up 50 years old and broke. Okay. So this is what I'm concerned about here. Keeping that foot on the gas, keeping continuing to grow your asset. Next thing. I don't know where we got this idea that like picking up your phone from a colleague at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night's a bad thing. And I'm not so sure that we should stick to that. In 2007, when Tim Ferriss wrote The 4-Hour Workweek and was real stressed out by working for one of the first crop of psychopathic, crazy technology companies to come out of San Francisco that were ruthlessly competing with their competition. And so many people wanted to work for them that they were able to treat their employees like absolute dog and they would put up with it. That's a problem if you pick up those phone calls at 8. You know what? Because you've been picking up phone calls all day long. But if you, the business owner, you come down from the mountains in North India, you're in South India, you got cell phone coverage. It's okay to pick up the phone every now and then. If you like your team, you like your colleague, and you're engaged with the kinds of intellectual challenges that they're facing. That's leadership. 
And I don't think you need to get away from being a leader. What if I told you to grow and to build and to continue to own the asset, all you had to do was pick up a couple calls at 8 p.m.? Would you be willing to do it? <laughs> and if your answer is simply just, no, I can't stomach it, well, then you're in the wrong business because there's something that you're passionate about talking about at 8 p.m. If for nothing else, it's just to keep your asset growing. It's a wonderful challenge. Like, there's great reasons to take off of work, and that's to raise a child. There's less great reasons to take off of work, which is to avoid a business that is toxic to you, that has become something that you hate, has become something that you no longer are interested in or want to be engaged in. That's an enormous problem that will be solved by seven days off the web, taking long walks, reflecting with some of the people closest to you, and then asking yourselves what you want to do with your life. And if your answer is, I, I just don't want to do my business anymore, then don't extend it for another quarter rant over. Next question. <laughs> We got a business idea donation. Dave and Carrie McKeegan, two of our favorite guests on this podcast, speakers at our events, and also occasionally business idea donators. Dave texted me the other day and said, Carrie had an idea that might be good for Dynamite Enterprises. He calls it pop-up schools. He writes to say, as a digital nomad crowd grows up, gets married and has kids, no one will want to, quote, live in one place for nine months per year so their kids can go to school. They also don't want to have to homeschool them personally. At least we don't, and a lot of other entrepreneurs won't want to either. There's starting to be these pop-up schools, some formal, some not. But if you take the average Dynamite Circle member and say, hey, we're all going to go to the south of Spain for three months, and we have ex-teachers who will focus on Y classes, you'll have the community built up around you, the kids get educated, and the coconut cowboy lives on just an idea, but figured the way DCers all hang out in Thailand post DCBKK or BCN for the summer just sort of lends itself to this model. Really interesting idea. Ian Carey came on the show just a few months ago, if you're interested in this topic, to talk about how she's educating her children in a, it's interesting, I was going to say a non-traditional way but there's actually a very long tradition of how she's educating her children. So there's this new tradition in a lot of industrialized countries of this kind of industrialized education. And really, I think what Carrie has done is revisited task-based, ritual-based education, Socratic method. Like these are old traditions of how we learn to care about things, how we learn to collaborate. And she shared that story on this pod. Is there a business around this sort of thing? And do you want to be in the business of having parents as your clients? I think that's the big question. Absolutely, I do not, but I would <laughs> certainly be a consumer of this. Just shout out to, uh, to Carrie, definitely, and David, definitely some of the smartest kids I've ever met in my whole life, very articulate. And you can tell that they're doing the right thing when it comes to school, quite amazing. Would I be a consumer of this product, Dan? Absolutely, I would. Is it hard to pull off? I think so. I mean, I think that the reality these days is that if you want your child to have somewhat of a high-level education, you have to pull it together for them. The state is not going to pull it together for them. The internet's not going to pull it together for them. You have to be actually an active participant in your child's learning experience. And uh, I'm about to go through this. My son is in uh, preschool, little Montessori school, but he's uh, quickly approaching kindergarten and questions like this are starting to come up, which is like, Hmm. You kind of look around and you see what, especially in Texas, what's going on in the public schools. And it's frightening, man. 
And and then you kind of look at your wallet and you say like, well, what better would I spend my money on? In that sense, the wallet is wide open. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but like... It's like going to the hospital. Yeah. Not like, oh, what, did you have any like Super Tuesday deals or anything <laughs> here? Like you're not price shopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think this is a huge problem to solve. And in the context, Dan, too, of what we're talking about earlier, which is families, especially of like employees of tech companies becoming more nomadic and being able to travel around. Starting to look at these international schools, I think is going to be interesting. Probably provide most of them a higher level of education than what you can find in the United States. So there's a bunch of benefits to being abroad. But I think ultimately as a parent, it feels like a huge responsibility, number one, to take on kind of this education thing. And then number two, there's no clear answers at this point. So if someone was to come to me and say like, look, I've thought about this. I'm an educator. I came from this system, pulled together a group of people. Like that to me is very appealing. That's a very interesting idea. Let's take a little flashback to Chris's question above. All of a sudden, we don't need to let it get to the point as entrepreneurs where people are throwing up their hands saying the public school systems in Europe have been destroyed or whatever. Like there is an opportunity here for someone to build something and there's plenty of precedent cases. You mentioned the international school system, the aforementioned expats, diplomats, wealthy locals have long congregated around college-like environments for high school kids. Now there's an opportunity with a whole new generation of remote workers and digital nomads to educate their children in more flexible ways that don't depend on a single city, a dormitory, a live-away situation, perhaps a hybrid situation where there's partially online learning, but there's also community-based learning where, yeah, you could build the travel into it where there's on-site learning and then there's virtual learning as well. It's a cool idea. I give it an A. All right, next reaction, uh, final one, Ian. Our good friend and former multi-time guest on the TMBA pod, Laura Roeder, also DC member, wrote, writes on Twitter, something I'm noticing about hiring post-COVID is that people are available for an interview anytime, including last minute. Remember when you had to pretend that you had a dentist appointment? This one really made me giggle, Ian, because like the proverbial dentist appointment was such a theme in my life and the lives of so many of my coworkers because in our generation, the drive to work generation, the water cooler generation, having to get your teeth cleaned was really the only legitimate reason you could leave work. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sad. <laughs> and so, yeah, the idea is if you're looking for a new job, the cost of the interview was actually quite immense. And so you would be very careful about whether or not you would take an interview. It's not like so easy to get to another location in order to talk to people that are not pre-sanctioned by your employer. In fact, I did a little chart here, which I often did in my two to two and a half hour commute on a daily basis on the California highways. The amount of discretional time that I had when I was 24 years old was so low. It's remarkable. I would typically wake up around 6.15 and I wouldn't arrive back at home until 7 p.m. And sometimes later, most of the time I'm trying to make some kind of food because I can't afford to go out. And I have to clean the clothes that I wore to go to said office. I mean, if you do all the math on it, we're talking about like a handful of hours on a weekly basis that I ultimately had to myself. This Laura Roeder tweet just brought back so many wonderful 
memories. What'd it do for you, Ian? Yeah, I was remembering having a job and someone wouldn't come into work like that morning. It was usually in the morning, right? It's just like, oh, what's going on? Like, they, oh, I had a dentist appointment. And then all of a sudden they had like a doctor's appointment the next week in the morning. And then the week after that, they're like, ah, I quit. I got a new job. And you're like, ah, I knew it. (laughs) Why wasn't it a thing like back in the day? Like, why didn't companies like interview at night? Like, everybody should have been interviewing at night, like 7 p.m. Totally. Or if you were a dentist, you could charge just 25% of the appointment (laughs) for the pass itself. This Dan dude has like some serious crown issues. It could get infected. It could affect the amount of time he can spend working at your office. We got to get him back in two weeks to make sure the procedure went well. Now you have no idea if people are on interviews or not. The only indication that you might have is that little green dot on Slack. Like, oh, I saw that thing off this morning, but they could be at the gym. Who knows? Maybe they're progressive. Maybe they work out in the morning instead of the afternoon. Uh, anyway, I love that tweet. I love working for a remote first company where we focus on results and not necessarily time in chair. Speaking of which, these things get progressively complicated to even think about results or to stay focused in a larger organization. It's going to be one of our themes over the summer. And one of the things that we'll be showcasing on this show is how as our team grows, I think our management expertise, Ian, is really going to be challenged this summer as We're going to be getting in the territory. We have more people working for us than ever have in the past. And also the businesses that we're working on are in some ways more complicated. And so I think it's going to be a big challenge for us. Hopefully we can share some of our learnings over the show about just how we're getting people on the same page, making focused progress and making sure they're not out there interviewing for all these other companies. We want to keep them, everybody excited about our mission and excited to advance Dynamite Jobs as well as the DC community. Final thought for you, Dan, this week and for the listeners out there, had a situation, some of you might think this is funny, but interacting with the Web3 company and came to the point where we needed to set up a meeting. And we're very much a Web2 company, I would say. And so there's this weird impasse. We're talking with the Web3 company and how are we going to organize this meeting? Like is the Web3 company, no way that they're going to send out a calendar invite. They've progressed past that, right? But I don't want to send out a calendar invite because clearly I'm a Web2 company and that, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> I'll make fun of you for... Yeah. Yeah. So how does a Web2 company interface with a Web3 company? The riddle of the week. Yeah. Nobody knows. You're talking to a guy who literally sunsetted Skype. They had to kick me off of the platform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for sending us your emails to our emails. We appreciate your thoughts and feedback to help us to create this show every Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll see you next week. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.